This episode is sponsored by Paleo Valley's pasture-raised chicken sticks. I'm super excited to share Paleo Valley's brand new pasture-raised chicken sticks. These chicken sticks are made from 100% pasture-raised chicken and organic spices that are preserved using natural fermentation rather than preservatives. So yes, no fake stuff or additives here. These chicken sticks are sourced from regenerative family farms raised on American pastures and each stick is free of chemicals, antibiotics, pesticides, and added hormones. Paleo Valley's chicken sticks are a perfect snack packed with 7 grams of protein and frankly, a great value without skimping on quality. Make sure to support this podcast and head over to paleovalley.com slash nwj and use code nwj to get 15% off your order. Thanks again for listening and supporting this podcast. How's it going? How was your anniversary weekend? It was good. I had a wedding anniversary, my husband's birthday, and then today's oh, wow. youngest daughter's uh, fourth birthday. So, Oh, wow. Wow. That's fun times. Did you guys have a big fun weekend? We, you know, my husband works every other weekend, so okay. this was his weekend to work, so it was pretty low-key, um, but he'll be off the next weekend. We live kind of opposite schedules, which somehow oh. works really great for children, but makes life a little bit chaotic. Right, right. Okay, well, I hope you guys can celebrate a little bit more next week and then, or, yeah. Okay, so, yeah, um, yeah, um, I just wanted to get into this. Uh, I mean, there's so much interesting information that uh, I wanted to share with um, our followers. And so, um, for those of you that don't know Dr. Fit and Fabulous, she's an amazing OBGYN, and I'll let her introduce herself and share her story. But um, we are very excited. I'm very excited to have her on and uh, have her talk about all things thyroid related and hormones and uh, whether women should be really going low to no carb. Um, and yeah, um, Dr. Seaman, if you could sort of share your story and, you know, let the audience know your amazingness. Oh, you're so kind. Okay. So um, for those of you that don't know me, my name is Dr. Jamie Seaman. I'm currently a private practice OBGYN. Uh, my mom struggled with her weight, you know, most of her life kind of yo-yo dieting up and down. And I really didn't have good nutrition as, as a child, no fault to my parents. We just lived very, very busy lives. And, um, I ate a lot of processed foods, a lot of processed carbs and, I ended up playing collegiate softball. I played for the Cornhuskers. So I was a college athlete. And um, it really wasn't until I went to college as an athlete where we worked with nutritionists that I really started kind of like assessing my diet. And the my course of study, I have a Bachelor of Science degree in Nutrition, Exercise, and Health Sciences. So I have a background in Nutrition and Exercise Science. Oh, nice. And uh, But once again, I was, I was a very active you know, athlete. And so when you are working out at that level of activity, you can get away with actually eating pretty bad stuff. And it wasn't until I graduated college and went to medical school that my diet really started to catch up with me. And so it wasn't, you know, for most people, it's the freshman 15. For me, it was like the first year of medical school. And all of a sudden you're in the library and in lectures, just sitting for so many hours of the day. And you know, and I really did try to be conscious about the number of calories I was consuming, but I wasn't following any sort of, you know, certain percentages of macronutrients and things like that. And I was still working out off and on. And then in my um, third year of medical school, we decided to get pregnant with our first child. So I had her during my fourth year of medical school. Wow. And then I would go on to have um, two more children during my training. And during my pregnancies, I failed my glucose testing. So for those of you that don't know, we, we test for diabetes and pregnancy at 28 weeks at the start of the third trimester. And pregnancy in and of itself is kind of a diabetogenic state. So the placenta secretes lots of hormones that can cause increased insulin resistance because your body is essentially wanting to, you know, shunt and shuttle all these, all these nutrients to your growing fetus. And so 
Um, I failed my glucose testing and then it was, I believe after my first daughter was born, I was also diagnosed with hypothyroidism. So I became very fatigued. I had, it was very symptomatic and I went on some thyroid replacement therapy. Um, prior to getting pregnant with my first daughter, I did have some, when I came off birth control, I had some irregular cycles and my doctor suggested that it could be polycystic ovarian syndrome. And I actually, I think I took metformin for a month before getting pregnant with her. And so after my third daughter was born, I thought, I could just see the writing on the wall. You know, I had failed glucose testing. I'm hypothyroid. And you guys, I had a background in nutrition and a medical degree. Mm -hmm. And I'm thinking, what can I do? Like, how can I get this weight off? Like, how can I be the healthiest version of me? And so I really set out more on a personal journey to begin with, trying to figure out how I was going to reverse my hypothyroidism, reverse my insulin resistance, get back the body that I had before I'd had three children. And when you look at genetics, when you look at your family history, that can sometimes be a window into your future. And I come from a, a family on my dad's side of, of type 2 diabetics. But when you look at them, they wouldn't look like it. You know, they're not, um, they're not obese, but um, I've had genetic testing done. I carry a lot of insulin resistance genes. And so for me, um, we tried a few different things first. First, we tried Whole30. Then we tried Paleo. And we eventually, about two and a half years ago, settled on a ketogenic diet. And um, I lost the weight very quickly. Um, I was able to come off of my thyroid replacement therapy. I was feeling the best I had really ever felt, you know, in my entire life. Uh, my husband stopped having migraines. We just felt like more optimal human beings. I mean, it's hard to describe, you know, what that feels like to... Sometimes the symptoms are so subtle um, that you don't realize what it feels like to really feel good and feel like your best self. And so um, I uh, dropped my, well, I guess I didn't tell you guys, I had some labs checked. I found out I was pre-diabetic. And so that was kind of the big slap in the face for me. And so through doing this, I, you know, I'm at the best body composition of my life, my biomarkers, um, which has been fun to follow different biomarkers are really the best, you know, they've ever been, I would consider them to be optimal biomarkers. And it's kind of segued into kind of a world of biohacking. Now I'm using lots of other therapies, sauna therapy, cryotherapy, red light therapy, and, and all these other things that we can do to kind of hack our system a little bit. Um, but shortly into my journey, you know, friends and family started noticing, you know, what was happening in my life. Oh, excuse my dog. He wants to be on the live too. Um, and so, uh, you know, when you start losing weight, people start asking questions. And so amongst the medical community, low carb and ketogenic is not wildly accepted. And right. I have a nutrition degree. I trained with all these nutritionists and I had some of them even reaching out to me saying like, you know, the ketogenic diet is not good for you long term, you know, all these different things. And so I really started looking into the data, you know, on the ketogenic diet. And, and at the time that I had started, it just coincidentally, keto was like the most Googled word in 2017. So all of a sudden, you know, there was this burst of and it just became kind of a fad diet. And so here I am in the medical community. Um, people think I'm just, you know, embracing some kind of fad, but I think it's really hard to deny results. Um, you know, when you can show somebody that you've normalized your A1C and your lipid markers look amazing and you have no inflammation, I mean, I think it's hard to deny those kind of results. And so I really started to incorporate it with some of my patients that I felt like really needed it. Um, I work in, you know, I work in women's health. So I see people with hypothyroidism, polycystic ovarian syndrome, estrogen dominance. And so there was just a lot of patients that I could really apply this to. And I have a passion for preventative medicine. I feel like our healthcare system just doesn't do enough of it. Mm -hmm. um, I'm currently, I am a board certified OBGYN, but I'm currently also a fellow in the integrative medicine program through the University of Arizona. So I have a strong interest in, you know, alternative therapies and things like that. And so started using it with my patients. And, and once I had patients that were you know, getting off meds and losing, you know, large, large amounts of weights, you know, my partners really started to pay attention to what I was doing. And so I've used it in my medical practice now over the last, you know, two years and seen some really amazing things. I think in the social media world, this community is just so cool to watch, you know, it's fun as a physician to sit back and watch people really take accountability for their own health. Right. Because we don't get to see that. We see the patients that are, that are sick 
um, and chronically ill. And most of them really don't want to, you know, changing their diet is like the last thing they're willing to do. So it's really cool as a physician to watch people, you know, really go through this transformation. And um, I, I'm super excited about, you know, what the possibilities are for medicine and where we go from here, because I think that once we really empower people to understand that they have the ability to heal their body from lots of different things through through good nutrition and and exercise and things like that i mean that is that that's amazing that's why i went into medicine in the first place yeah and i mean a lot of what you say it's so true um i mean there are a lot of studies that say that you know so one of the studies I wanted to bring up is um, there are studies that say that the ketogenic diet is really beneficial in the short run to, um, I guess, heal having high glucose and um, heal like insulin resistance. But in the long term, they say that um, it could actually damage your gut biome because of the um, the limited amount of vegetables you eat. And so, you know, there's just not a lot of variety. And especially for um, zero carb carnivores, um, you're basically it's going to damage your gut biome. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah. So, you know, what's interesting is people say, you know, that, that ketogenic is not healthy long term, but we don't have a lot of studies on that. And so I think it's, I think it's difficult to say that that's, that's solid science right there. You know, anecdotally, we look at people who have practiced a ketogenic way of living, or there's certainly people out there that have practiced a carnivore-based diet for long periods of time. And I think it's interesting to look at those people. They certainly look healthy. Um, you know, they've reported, you know, that they don't have any chronic diseases and things like that. So I think sometimes um, it's easy in the media to, you know, spread headlines around when, when maybe it's unfounded. So let's talk about some of those things individually. So um, the first one, you know, I hear is damaging hormones. You know, on a, a woman shouldn't be ketogenic long-term because it could damage her hormones. Well, I think, you know, when we talk about hormones, we, we also have the ability to repair hormonal imbalances with, with low-carbon ketogenic. When you look at hormonal pathways, you know, um, insulin is a major, major driver of some of our hormone pathways. Mm -hmm. So insulin will drive cortisol up, insulin will drive androgens up, and then we see uh, an increased conversion of those androgens into estrogens. So right. for men, that means that they can have estrogen dominance, they have low testosterone. I don't know, people just look around your town. Have you seen the testosterone clinics that have popped up around your town? I mean, it's a major is issue, you know, when we talk about testosterone replacement in men, and a lot of that is due to obesity and insulin resistance. Then when we talk about women, women who carry additional adiposity, additional body fat have estrogen dominance. And so for people with estrogen dominance or polycystic ovarian syndrome, this is a great way of living because driving that insulin down corrects a lot of their hormone imbalances. When we look at it long term, you know, I have had... Um, I have had some patients who, where their estrogen may have gotten a little bit low. Right. Um, like for instance, I always tell women that your menstrual cycle is like your fifth vital sign. So in a woman that is not on any sort of contraception, they should be ovulating regularly. So women essentially go through puberty, then we go through these fertile periods, you know, fertile years of our life where we should be having regular menstrual cycles. And then we go through uh, perimenopause and menopause, which I like to call like reverse puberty. So in our years where we are, we are fertile, we should be essentially releasing an egg every month, which triggers a normal menstrual cycle. Um, if you are not menstruating, then there is some sort of hormone balance occurring, and you need to have labs checked to look if, the, if, the, if that's at the level of the ovaries or if that's at the level of the pituitary gland. Um, for, I've had a, couple, a handful of patients that have just had such dramatic weight loss that they've sometimes become anovulatory. And in those situations, we, we look at how many calories they're consuming, or we look at how much fat they're consuming. Sometimes it's just changing the macronutrients. But I've certainly had patients that have been on this type of diet for many years, their biomarkers look good, their hormones look good. And if you're regular, you know, if you're, if you're having regular menstruation, that is right there telling you that there's a balance of, of hormones. Um, and so um, the next one you talked about was the, what'd you say, the influence on the gut microbiome? Right, right. Yeah, yeah. So the microbiome research is, is interesting. We're in the very early stages. Right. 
Um, we did go through the Human Microbiome Project. And for anybody that doesn't follow me, you can scroll back on my page. I did a lot of posts on, on what, we, what the conclusions were from the Human Microbiome Project. But when we talk about low-carbon ketogenic, or specifically carnivore, which is very low or no-carb, um, we are looking at a diet that is essentially absent in fiber. And fiber has been pounded into our heads that we need, we need fiber. Yes. And when you compare a high-fiber diet to a ketogenic diet, um, what's interesting is the benefits that we get from fiber is that they, they feed you know, good gut bacteria. They yes. create, uh, they go through a process of fermentation in the gut, and they create short-chain fatty acids. Um, right. And so things like butyrate. So when you're on a ketogenic or a carnivore diet, you actually make large amounts of beta-hydroxybutyrate, which is the most active ketone body. And you can make far more beta-hydroxybutyrate on a low-carb or ketogenic diet than you can make butyrate from eating loads and loads and loads of fiber. Okay. And so we see some of the, you know, we see the same benefits from these high levels of BHB or beta-hydroxybutyrate. And so the argument that you need fiber, I'm not sure if it's 100% there for someone that's actually ketogenic. Um, and, um, you know, with the gut microbiome, I don't know that it that we're at a stage in testing. You know, one of the things that gets thrown around is like alpha diversity. So people say, well, if you go low carb or ketogenic, you'll ruin the diversity of your gut. Um, so, you know, diversity when you look at the studies, maybe isn't the, the be all end all that we that we think it is, you know, is is having a diverse microbiome, the healthiest gut microbiome, you know, when right. we look at how the microbiome functions, it looks like not necessarily the bacteria that are there, but there's these what we call core metabolic pathways. Okay. So it just depends actually how our bacteria in our gut is functioning. So maybe having a lower diversity isn't all that bad. I mean, that's what some of the studies are showing is that, that the diversity isn't necessarily uh, maybe what makes it the healthiest. The other interesting part is that fasting has been shown to increase alpha diversity. And when you look at people that are low carb or ketogenic or carnivore, a lot of them go through either periods of intermittent fasting right. or they're doing some sort of extended fasting. And so, you know, Maybe when we're talking about preservation of diversity, just the intermittent fasting or extended fasting may help, you know, keep that diversity. Um, animal diets in general increase bacteria in the gut that are bile tolerant. So we use bile, which is secreted from the, the gallbladder to, right. uh, you know, help with fat digestion. And so we know that people that um, eat more animal-based diets, have more of this bacteria, and we see a decrease in um, one of the phyla called Formicutes, which is known for um, feeding on plant polysaccharides. So we do know that there are differences. Um, the, the two biggest phyla in our gut are Formicutes and Bacteroides, and we know that as we age, we see uh, changes in ratios of these two phyla, and we know people with chronic diseases, we see changes in these ratios as well. Um, so, you know, I'm not convinced, Judy, that, that um, you know, long-term you're ruining your gut microbiome by not eating fiber. I think we're in the very early stages. Um, you know, it's interesting, like, for instance, uh, Paul Saladino and I were talking about this the other day, is, like, for instance, diabetics have, you know, decreased diversity, but clearly people who are carnivore that may have d decreased diversity don't have, you know, high insulin and inflammation. Right. So... You know, I think sometimes in that situation, it's like the, the chicken and the egg, if that makes sense. Right. Hey guys, just to let you know, my Carnivore Cure book is back in stock. For nine months, it was out of print and used prices were up to $300. Make sure to get your copy today that has over 200 colored tables and graphics and over 400 pages of meaty goodness. We have a limited supply, so get your copy today on Amazon.com. And if you can leave a review, I'd be super grateful. And I think there's, um, I know that there are anecdotal stories. I mean, they're not studies per se, but um, I know there are people that have gone carnivore and then got their, um, like a stool sample checked. And, um, you know, they, they did have a healthy, diverse 
um, microbiome, but you know, I just wanted to hear your take on it. Yeah, I've had mine tested with two okay. different labs, and I have good diversity, you know, so I haven't tested enough patients to really give you like a clinical opinion. Sure. Um, I know other doctors in the community have tested people, and certainly people have, like you said, self tested. There's been anecdotal reports and things like that, but you know, I'm just, um, it's, it's interesting. We do know that the, the long, like for instance, not related to the microbiome, but your body certainly adapts pretty rapidly to new lifestyles, new ways of living. So for instance, the longer you've been ketogenic, we see downregulation of GLUT4 transporters, which transport glucose. And that can almost look like insulin resistance. Like yes. for instance, if I have a pregnant patient that has followed a low carb diet for a long time, if I give her a glucose challenge test, 50 grams of glucose, uh, they most always will fail. <laughs> Right. And people will say, oh, well, now now you've broken your pancreas. Like, <laughs> I can't even deal with any glucose. But part of it is just that downregulation. So, like, even people that go, you know, carnivore for short periods of time and then start to add back in small amounts of fiber or plants, you know, I think that you can still see a shift one way and then back the other. Right. I don't think you're, like, permanently ruining or damaging something. Now, you can eat fiber on a ketogenic diet. I mean, a well-formulated ketogenic diet you know, allows for leafy greens and Brussels sprouts and, and those things if you can tolerate them. Right. Uh, so certainly if you wanted to consume fiber on a ketogenic diet, you could. Um, I just don't know that um, that we have enough information really there to, to make some of those claims. Okay. I mean, that's fair. Um, one, um, I mean, one of the biggest questions I wanted to ask you was, you know, there's a lot of talk in, um, I guess, in this nutrition space, especially with low carb, and how, and I think you've touched on a little bit of this, but if maybe we could do a little bit of a deeper dive, but you know, there's a lot of people out there that say, if you're, um, especially if you're a woman, um, if you have sort of low functioning thyroid, um, if you have Hashimoto's, all of that um, stuff, then it's probably best not to go really low carb and especially not no carb, it'll mess up your hormones, it'll, um, and the thought is again that uh, when you drive glucose too low, it's good if you um, have high, um, you know high insulin resistance. Then um, going low glucose will then lower your th um, insulin resistance. But at a certain point, you may have too little insulin, and then it won't drive the glucose into cells. You'll feel the low energy, mm -hmm. and then uh, you won't have that. You know, also the thyroid, the T4 to T3 conversion, and so. Um, and I know that a lot of people that go on low carb, um, the, their labs will show that their T3 has dropped. And I know yep. you know all the science, but I'd love for you to share with all of our followers, um, like what exactly are the mechanics? And I mean, is it true that women should not be going low to no carb? Yeah, yeah, good question. And for me personally, it really matters to me. I mean, I, I, I had hypothyroidism. Right. So um, I've been able to follow my labs throughout this process. So um, here's what we know. When you look at the literature on people that have done ketogenic or low carb, um, I think Dr. Finney and Dr. Yancey have probably published the most studies on this topic. Okay. And when we look at the number of people that were enrolled in these studies, we, if you add all the studies together, it comes out to be like somewhere in the three fifth, you know, three hundred to four hundred range, which is a you know a decent amount of people. Right. And they did follow thyroid biomarkers. Now, what they saw was they saw a reduction in free T3. So T3 is the essentially the most active thyroid, thyroid hormone. So let's talk about, let me just back up for a second for people who don't have <laughs> backgrounds like we do. Okay. So essentially, your hypothalamus in the brain secretes something called TRH. TRH travels down to your pituitary gland and secretes TSH, thyroid stimulating hormone which then travels down to your thyroid gland and it secretes T4 and smaller amounts of T3. Mm -hmm. So T4 essentially goes to the tissues in your body, liver, kidney, different places, and gets converted into T3. Now a majority of our thyroid hormone is bound to a protein, um, thyroid binding globulin, and then the rest of it is circulating in the free form. Okay, this is the form that is available to be you know, transported in and out of the cells. Um, to uh, create action at the at the nucleus of the cell, okay? So the free T3 is basically the active thyroid hormone. So what they saw in these 350 patients was there was a reduction in free T3. 
So then what we do is we look at the other markers of thyroid function. So when you're, when you're talking about thyroid function, you want to look at the whole picture. So you want to look at what TSH is doing because this is a negative feedback loop. So as free T3 drops, if the body senses that there's a, a reduction basically in like available energy, then it should increase the TSH to make more T4 to eventually make more free T3. But what we don't see is we don't see a rise in TSH or thyroid stimulating hormone, which tells me that the body is basically finding a new level of homeostasis. Now, the other thing would be, what is the T4 doing? Is it that the T4 can't be converted into T3, you know? And the T4 is essentially always normal. So I've had enough patients that have been ketogenic low carb that I've seen the same things that Dr. Yancey and Dr. Finney have seen in their studies is that although we see a reduction in free T3, we don't see a rise in, in TSH. So then in this situation, you ask the patient, how are they feeling? Do they feel like they're low energy? Do they have hypothyroidism symptoms? And most of them are not, don't seem to be symptomatic from this. So the theory is that this reduction in free T3, just like when somebody sees a reduction in, in insulin and an increase in insulin sensitivity, is that this may actually be explained by an increase in, in free T3 sensitivity. So although you have you know, T3 circulating and you have these receptors, um, there, is, there is a level, just like with insulin resistance, you can have thyroid resistance. And so we think that this reduction in free T3, and it actually may be protective. When you look at longevity, um, having your thyroid cranking out you know, multiple days and weeks and months and years of your life actually is not good for your longevity. And so this could be somewhat of a protective mechanism to drop the, to drop the T3 and actually just have increased sensitivity to the T3. Um, the other, so, so, so my personal theory is that when you're low carb or ketogenic, you have increased insulin sensitivity, you have increased leptin sensitivity, and you have increased T3 sensitivity. Um, that's just kind of, you know, what I've seen clinically. Um, the other things to, um, to consider is that um, when you diet, when you create calorie restriction, we always see about a 5 to 15% drop in metabolism or a drop in thyroid function. So I think sometimes it's very difficult because let me just throw out an example. Uh, I'll have an online client that goes low carb or ketogenic and they lose 30 pounds in, you know, one to two months. They lose the significant amount of weight and they call me and they say, I went to my doctor and I, I checked and my, my thyroid's out of whack. You know, this diet has like ruined my thyroid. It's low. And we know that what happens is when you lose rapid weight like that, you will see a reduction in right. anybody that's in a calorie restriction will see a reduction in thyroid function. And so it's something that you need to follow over time. You can't just say, oh, I went low carb for two months and my thyroid went down. It's something that you need to follow and continue to follow. And sometimes, like I said, Sometimes we make adjustments. Sometimes there are patients that may need replacement, but the thyroid is very complex. And um, I think we're gonna talk about this in a minute. There's lots of other cofactors in the diet that are, that are part of normal thyroid function. And sometimes it's, it's not necessarily the glucose or the insulin, but it could be deficiencies in some of these other cofactors. Sure, so it's more than just one piece that it's causing the thyroid and the hormones to be affected. Um, right. Even anecdotally for me, um, I always had sort of normal range thyroid um, um, biomarkers. And then as soon as I went uh, low carb to, or no carbon carnivore, uh, my T3 is low. So that but that is the only marker of all my thyroid markers that are low. And I mean, I feel better than ever. So I mean, right. it makes sense exactly what you're saying has happened to me too. And I mean, I don't feel the fatigue. I don't feel um, that I need to sleep a lot. In fact, I probably sleep a little less than I used to. So mm -hmm. yeah, mm -hmm. makes sense. yeah, I've noticed the same thing. So back when I had hypothyroidism after my pregnancies, I could, I could literally probably tell you what my TSH was because if it wasn't close to one, okay. I, I was having horrible symptoms. Okay. And I was on levothyroxine Synthroid at the time. You know, I was on some, some replacement. Now um, my TSH bounces between anywhere from probably 1.5 to 3 and my free t3 is on the lower end of normal so mine sits about 2.1 2.2 
but I have zero symptoms of, of hypothyroidism and I know what it felt like. <laughs> and so I, you know, easy to make that comparison. I agree with you. I probably need, you know, slightly less sleep um, than I did back then. Well, I, um, I have an aura ring now. So I've been, you know, tracking my oh, sleep. Awesome. Mm -hmm. I was concerned that I maybe wasn't getting enough because I wake up at 4.30 in the morning to go to the gym, but I'm getting really quality deep sleep and REM sleep. So that's awesome. Um, how long did it take you to sort of um, have to get off those supplements or you know, the thyroids um, like support and um, just from changing your diet? Like how long did it take for you to sort of not be hypo, you know, have hypothyroid? Right. right. So I think I, um, I want to say I lost like 26 pounds pretty over like a couple of months when I first started. And I think it was after I'd kind of lost that initial weight that I thought, I'm going to trial off of the medication and kind of see what happens. And okay. um, it was like two years ago. And so I went off the medication and then I just followed my thyroid levels and okay. off the medication. I mean, they really, they didn't do much. And so I had already kind of like keto adapted, fat adapted before I went off of my medication. Um, and I always recommend people, you know, if you're on some sort of medicine, work with your doctor, you know, things like diabetes medications, blood pressure medications. I've seen patients get off them rather rapidly, but you want to have somebody that's, that's following and doing it in a safe. Yeah. Don't just stop them without. <laughs> right, right. Um, and so, um, in terms of cofactors, you just mentioned that, um, are there any cofactors or, you know, specifically any foods that, you know, people should be consuming to help with their thyroid function and all that good stuff. Yeah. So what's, uh, you know, what's interesting is if you have hypothyroidism symptoms, a lot of healthcare professionals will just check a TSH and a free T4 and be like, Oh, you're fine. Or they'll say, Oh, you're low, you know, let's put you on replacement, but we're not looking at all. I mean, the, like I said, the thyroid is extremely complex. So yes, there are other things we think about. So the first one is iron. So if people have, um, there is a heme dependent thyroid peroxidase. So if people are low in iron, we can see um, a change in thyroid function. The other really big ones are zinc and selenium. And so zinc and selenium are needed for the conversion of T4 to T3. And so in a lot of uh, protocols, you'll see people adding additional selenium um, to the diet if it doesn't look like they're getting adequate dietary selenium. Um, the other one is iodine. So iodine is, is what our thyroid hormones are essentially made from. And yeah. so um, the healthcare system a number of years ago decided that we would um, add iodine to table salt. And so that is the <laughs> primary source for a lot of Americans um, is um, iodinated table salt. And uh, because they're not getting it in their diet, um, in our house, we eat a, a fair amount of seafood. And so that's oh. typically where we're getting most of our, you know, iodine um, in our diet. But you can also add additional iodine. Now, iodine is controversial because um, iodine can, um, in people who have thyroid dysfunction, yeah. can exacerbate issues. Like mm -hmm. more is not better. That's what I want people to take away when I talk about like zinc, selenium, iron, iodine more isn't always better we we, need, we have a specific need and we need that much and not a whole bunch more than that so you can't just dump more more fuel on the fire but you want to get adequate iodine um, that would be one of the most common reasons uh, for hypothyroidism and then the second would be autoimmune disorders like Hashimoto's or Graves disease um, but there's lots of other cofactors too your B vitamins vitamin C and E vitamin D and then vitamin A are extremely important so you can see that there are a lot of different players in the game when it comes to thyroid dysfunction. And if one of these is depleted, um, we can see, you know, thyroid dysfunction. So, you know, even just going low carb or ketogenic and not having a well-formulated diet could, you know, could cause an issue with your yeah. thyroid, you know, right, right there. Yeah. Right. I think um, it, for autoimmune, I mean, if your gut is messed up, then that'll, you know, exacerbate that. I mean, um, and in terms of selenium, um, I've heard of a lot of um, anecdotal stories about people taking like one to two Brazil nuts a day. But again, if uh, you have bad, um, like gut issues that can affect the even the absorption of the selenium there. Um, right. In in my school, um, we've learned a little bit of functional evaluation where and we don't test people with hypothyroidism because of the iodine um, sensitivities. But 
um, we have a really cool, interesting test where we can get iodine tincture and then we'll just put it on the arm. And what the um, test is showing that is if the dye goes away within 24 hours, it's likely that your body needs that iodine and is absorbing it very quickly. If you have it and within after 24 hours, it's still there, it's likely that you're, you're good with your iodine and your body saying, no, I don't want it. So it's a pretty cool test. Yeah. Yeah. So I tested on my kids. So if I, we haven't had seafood in a while, I'm like, let me just put this on here in case we need a little bit of iodine in your body. So, so you're, just, you're using like a Lugol's, like a potassium chloride? Yes, yes. So yes. we just test it. Um, and so we don't have hypothyroidism in our family. So I figure my kids won't have issues. But I mean, it's, it's pretty cool. And I mean, they like it. They think it's like some kind of henna tattoo, but... Yeah, we, um, don't have, we don't have hypothyroidism either. I, I really honestly believe that my hypothyroidism was caused by my high insulin and my insulin resistance. Sure. Yes. So hypothyroidism is very prevalent amongst diabetics. So people with uh, high insulin states, we see more, um, more hypothyroidism. Um, insulin drives, like we said, these hormone pathways that creates more cortisol, more inflammation, Cortisol inhibits your deiodinase um, enzymes. So you have something called D1, D2, and D3, and cortisol can inhibit those. And then for people like me, another reason I believe I was susceptible to hypothyroidism in this high insulin state is when I did some genetic testing last year, I found out that I have a polymorphism in my D2, deiodinase 2 um, oh, okay. enzyme, which I am the person that doesn't convert T4 to T3 very well oh, okay. um, because of this polymorphism. So, uh, so high insulin, high cortisol uh, are not good for, yeah. for somebody like me that would be susceptible to having difficulty in converting that, that T4 to T3. Right. And I think you mentioned that in doctors, um, the talk you had with Dr. Saladino. So I recommend everyone that hasn't watched that. You guys definitely need to watch it. That was a really, really good YouTube episode. Um, can you talk a little bit about reverse T3 and how it's affected by nutrient deficiencies? Yeah. So when you are converting T4 into T3, the other thing that can happen is T4 can turn it into something called reverse T3. And reverse T3 is not the active T3 hormone um, that free T3 is, but it can bind at the receptor site and it can actually block free T3 from working. And so we don't want to make high amounts of reverse T3. Okay. We see the body make high amounts of reverse T3 essentially with what I call psychological, um, physical, or physiologic stress. So when we look at patients like that are in the intensive care unit up at the hospital that I work at, um, a lot of times they would be making high amounts of reverse T3. Um, when we see people who have a lot of inflammation, high cortisol, that would be a reason for converting into reverse T3. And so this is something you want to look at because it may appear that their thyroid hormone levels are, are quote unquote normal, but they're shunting a lot of T4 into reverse T3, and that could be blocking the action of the free T3. So I hope that makes sense. So we don't want to make a lot of, of reverse T3. Okay. Uh, yeah. Okay. Um, going back to a little bit of the hypothyroidism. So if I was a client of yours and I, you know, I showed the signs of the fatigue and, you know, my markers show a little bit of hypothyroidism, what, what, what would be your typical protocol? Um, I know it's all bio-individual, but I mean, in general, like what would be your general tips for somebody that is hypothyroid? or has hypothyroidism. Yeah, so, you know, not knowing whether, you know, it's iodine deficiency versus, you know, iodine. usually I've checked, yeah, usually I've checked their antibodies um, to see if it's, you know, Hashimoto or Graves or something like that. But um, just in a general sense for people who are hypothyroidism, the recommendation is to view their nutrition like more paleo. So gluten and dairy tend to be very inflammatory. So removing things like gluten and dairy and just doing more of like a paleo type diet can be helpful sometimes um, in correcting that. Um, the other things, you know, from, from my standpoint, when you talk about all of these different cofactors and nutrient deficiencies, when you think about a well-based, you know, well-formed ketogenic diet or carnivore diet, especially one that includes liver, you know, liver is like a powerhouse of, of the B vitamins, the fat-soluble vitamins, you know, minerals and things like that. And so 
you know, um, there are thyroid support supplements out there, but I think that getting things from whole food, from nutrition in the most bioavailable form is the most ideal. So the very first thing that we look at is their diet. And I meet, the, I meet the patient where they're at. There are patients that are not willing to make those changes, and so I have to do the best thing for those patients. But people that are motivated to avoid the use of medications, I don't put people on medications right away. Um, I don't act off one lab value. So if you have one lab value, we talk about what we can change, and we recheck it in six to eight weeks. So uh, the first one is diet. So it, for sure, ex, you know, getting dairy, gluten, eggs are kind of controversial, you know, amongst hypothyroidism. I think eggs provide good nutrition, um, but for some people, um, there could be some, you know, intolerances and things like that. Um, and then, yes, you mentioned the Brazil nuts earlier. So sometimes uh, we tell people for selenium, uh, Brazil nuts are a great, you know, source of selenium. So uh, two to three Brazil nuts per day provides all the selenium that you need um, in your diet. Um, iodine, um, like we said, more is not always better, but sometimes iodine supplementation is needed. Um, and I uh, typically will do that through either a capsule or with a Lugol's a potassium chloride solution. And you only need about, you know, just, just a few drops per day. Um, I'm totally going to put that on my arm later today. <laughs> on my stories you guys can tell me if i'm iodine deficient yeah <laughs> just uh, make sure to mark your time and then don't scrub that area and then just keep looking at it as long as it's there and it hasn't really faded then you're good yeah i know I, I was curious too but it's, it's fun it's fun and it's fun to do on your kids yeah so um so anyway so uh and then and then the other one is zinc you know which is a big one too and so basically I look at what they're eating, how can we modify their diet, you know, what are they willing to do to modify their diet, and then we follow, you know, their, their body's response, we, re, we recheck it. So how often do you typically uh, recheck the markers? Is it, I heard you say six weeks, but is that about sort of the time frame? Yeah, I typically have them come out, you know, about six to eight weeks later, recheck and kind of, you know, see where things are at. Okay. Um, we're slowly getting close to the end time, but I wanted to get into talking about kids um, and nutrition and going low carb. So I know you have three daughters. Um, do you feed them a low carb diet? Um, have you tested them for any of, um, you know, the, the markers that you've, um, that you've tested yourself? I mean, if you could just kind of talk through that with us. Yeah. So I have three daughters. They're just turning four, six, and eight. And when we first started, um, my kids were not low carb by any means. Um, <laughs> my husband and I were like having steak and a side salad and they were eating like mac and cheese. And part of it was, you know, going through medical training. My husband works at night. He's a, he's a police sergeant. And just oh. with our crazy schools, there was a lot of nights where my children, um, you know, we weren't eating as a family. And so I'll be the first to admit we fell uh, prey to a lot of convenience foods, you know, for our kids. And, um, but I wanted to get our diets right first before, you know, I, I started to do any, you know, experimentation with them. Um, now my kids, they for sure are low sugar. So we, you know, don't bring anything in here that, um, that has a lot of sugar. Um, we try to avoid, you know, things with flowers and things like that. My kids are not, I wouldn't say they're ketogenic, but they're definitely like low sugar, low carb. Um, we're starting to experiment with lots of new foods with them. Um, I've noticed that they um, have started to ask for more meat, which is just awesome. mind blowing to me. Cause as a child, like that was like, I didn't ask for like chicken and beef and things like that. Like I really wanted carbs. Um, right. But like my daughter uh, the other night, I offered her like a protein waffle and she asked for a bowl of beef and I just like made her some ground beef. And then last night, the same thing, my daughter was like, I want what you're having. And so I think, you know, it's good to set an example from your kids, for your kids. You know, they definitely ask, like, why do you eat that? And I talk about it from a perspective of, of I want to feel good. I'm eating this because it makes me feel good. We don't say, like, oh, that's healthy or that's unhealthy or, you know, whatever. Um, I bought an amazing book this year called Buddies in My Belly, which is kind of a children's book written at the level of, about the gut microbiome. Right. They really embraced that concept a lot. Like, when we when they're offered something with a lot of sugar, I say, remember how your buddies feel when you eat something like that. And for them to start to make some of those correlations with their own bodies right. is super powerful. Yeah. Um, you know, 
the question about like, could a kid be totally ketogenic or, you know, or carnivore even, um, it's interesting if we can thrive as adults, you know, um, you know, ancestrally, the, the children ate probably what the mom and dad ate, right? They didn't right. eat a special diet. And so I think it's interesting for my kids, um, you know, they do eat small, they eat berries um, and they will eat vegetables. So like I said, they're, they're, they're definitely um, lower carb, but they probably aren't ketogenic. You know, I have one daughter that would eat a whole thing of blueberries if I let her. I was talking to Paul Saladino and he's like, oh, or I said raspberries and he's like, oh, the oxalates. Yeah, I was gonna say. <laughs> um, but my children are healthy. You know, they're certainly without disease. I haven't checked biomarkers with my children. Um, I don't know that any of them would submit uh, to a blood draw. <laughs> That's funny. Um, you know, but but definitely we're working on their nutrition big time. And it was kind of a goal of mine, um, you know, over this last year to really clean up their diet as much as possible. I'm not naive. They go to birthday parties, they go sure. to school, they get offered, you know, some of these things. And so my job is to empower them with the knowledge of how their body really works and right. how to fuel their body optimally. Um, and I feel like that's just the best thing we can do as a parent. And, you know, it's really sad because um, I was just talking to my husband the other day. We were in a public place last weekend, and I was just, like, amazed. Like, when you look around, the number of children with obesity, um, it's, it's staggering, and it's growing. Yeah. And I what what i bring into this house like my children are only going to eat what i bring in so i feel this level of responsibility as a parent um when when they're still under my roof until they leave me and they have to make their own decisions i, I feel like that's on you you know as a parent and so it's really sad for me to see um children that are developing diabetes and obesity and things like that and and, and sometimes their parents don't you know any better too they right. suffer from a lot of the same problems but I think we have a responsibility as a parent to teach our kids about this. And the best way to start is, is with yourself being your own expert. Right. Um, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. So when you right. talk about genetics, I have to assume that, that my kids are probably going to be more predisposed to insulin resistance. It's certainly, you know, possible. Um, if they, if they stay active, um, you know, and, and eat the right way, hopefully they can avoid some of the problems that I did, you know, finding out in my thirties. Yeah, no, that's awesome. I mean, I, I think I have the same viewpoint as you. Um, I, you know, when I see kids, um, at a very young age, um, struggling with anemia or, you know, fat and non-alcoholic fat, fatty liver disease, all of those can really be changed with diet. And, um, just the parents have to be the initial change. And so um, I do the same. I, I try very hard to eat well, and then explain to my kids like why I'm only choosing to eat meat or why I don't eat other, you know, foods that can be um, inflammatory or make those bugs in my system feel, you know, a little sick. Um, and so yes, I, I think um, it's not just telling them that they should eat, um, like more nutrient dense foods, but also, uh, you know, actually showing in actions um, that is the biggest way to, I guess, uh, ev evoke change in our children. And yeah. like I said, it's a, it's a responsibility for sure. Yeah. And I had somebody ask, you know, the other day, um, they had a client that was like, I'm having a baby. Like when they turn X, you know, six months old, like what is the most ideal diet to feed them? Um, I get I, that a lot. That question, I think sometimes, <laughs> you know, I think sometimes when you look at like American culture, like we're raising kids in this system where like we assume that the only thing they'll eat is like mac and cheese and chicken nuggets. And so I think it's important that when you're talking about, you know, introducing foods to a baby, I think it's cool. Like the videos of people, their babies, like eating salmon. Never, I never would have yeah. thought to like give that to my, to my child. But I think experimenting with those types of foods, different meats, different, because if, at that age, they don't have preferences. I mean, right. if you only raise them on chicken nuggets and mac and cheese, I, that's all they're going to want. And so right. it's important to expose them to lots of different tastes and things like that. Now, there was a question somebody asked is like, um, if you avoid, you know, grains or a certain vegetables or things like that, are you... Uh, predisposing them to yes. having intolerances later on in life. I think this is a really interesting thought. And it's part of the reason why I really haven't like excluded a lot from my mm -hmm. children's diets. 
um, they're still growing and, and, and I think they tolerate, you know, raspberries and things like that just fine. Um, I think it's an interesting thought. Like for instance, there was a, some good literature that came out, you know, recently talking about peanut allergies in children and actually introducing peanuts at an earlier stage prevents the, um, prevents the allergy from forming in a, like a sibling who's very susceptible. So I don't know the answer to that. Um, I have been kind of probing some of my allergy immunology, uh, oh, okay. quality, you know, about this. Um, mm -hmm. it's, I mean, it's an interesting thought, you know, should you, yeah. yeah. should you, should you, um, expose them to even just like small amounts just, just for that reason? I mean, yeah. mm -hmm. I eat small amounts of plants, you know, and things like that. Um, I suppose that it's, it's possible, you know, we see adaptations in the body when you, you know, avoid certain things. So I think it's very, you know, individualized probably too. Yeah. And I, I've been thinking a lot about it too, because I mean, I'm raising my kids in the whole low carb space and just thinking, I mean, uh, just in terms of immunology, I mean, we have like memory B cells, like the white blood cells where, you know, they are exposed to an allergen or an antigen and they, um, the next time they, um, I guess, whether it's, you know, my son ingests in, um, that food that causes that allergen, now the body is stronger and has a stronger immune system to be able to defend themselves from that. So if we're not exposing them to any of the harm um, or these harmful foods, um, are we doing a disservice to our kids when they grow up? I mean, and that's something I'm like been thinking about and also like hormetic stress, you know, right. we exercise and then we, we grow stronger from that because of the stressor that we're putting on our body. So is it better to put, you know, not a lot, but um, like little bits of sort of toxic foods in our bodies um, to make our kids stronger in the future, right? Yeah. So yeah. And when they're not under our roof, what if they decide to have a go to a party and eat, you know, some of those bad foods? And then what if they get really sick from it? It's just thoughts that I've been having. And I've been very curious about, you know, what your thoughts were on it. So it's yeah, yeah, no, it's interesting. I mean, like you think about people like herbalists making like tinctures and things like that. And a lot yeah. of it to, you know, uh, activate pathways. Like we think about some of the like purported benefits of like fruits and vegetables, like upregulation of like NRF2, but you can get that through like cold therapy. And, yes. you know, there's, there's other ways to induce those pathways. But yeah, from an allergy immunology perspective, I feel like my personal opinion would be is that small exposure would be more helpful long-term, but yeah. Uh, I, yeah. I'm sure, I'm sure eventually there will be a study. Maybe, I don't know, but. Well, um, I think it's hard, like pregnant, like pregnancy is really difficult, right? Because we, it's very hard to study pregnant and breastfeeding women from an ethical yeah. standpoint. And it goes the same for children. I mean, right. it's, it's mostly yeah. anecdotal evidence. Um, before uh, we, I guess, because I think we only have a few minutes left, but um, what what does a day of eating look like for you and your family? Yeah, so um, so for me, every day it looks different because it depends, like, if I'm going to be in the operating room in the morning or, like, how my day looks like. But um, a couple days a week, I try to do intermittent fasting. So I wake up at 4.30 in the morning. I go to the gym. I work out in a fasted state. Every morning at 5 a.m., I take one rest day. It's usually on Sundays. Um, I use uh, salt and exogenous ketones as a pre and intra post workout. Um, okay. I use a couple grams of Redmond's Real Salt, and I use uh, about 11 to 12 grams of BHB salts. And that's just what I've done for like a, a long time, and it's just like what's worked. I find that I don't need any other stimulants or anything like that. Um, I've experimented with lots of different like carb cycling. I've been predominantly carnivore since November. So currently my schedule would look something like um, skipping breakfast. And then I usually do like some bowl of like meat, like a meat mixture or leftover chicken or steak. I usually basically eat for lunch, whatever we cooked for dinner the night before, right. maybe some salmon. Um, certain periods of time I might have, you know, a little bit of broccoli or something like that. Um, I do have small amounts of, of veggies and I was, I just, it's mostly like a texture thing. Like I just, like, I just want a crunchy salad yeah. or something like that. It's just, it's purely a texture thing because I definitely feel better when I avoid them more. Mm -hmm. Um, 
And then for dinner, I mean, it will be the same thing. Um, you know, we'll have hamburgers or uh, steaks or salmon. We eat a lot of that. Um, it may sound really boring to a lot of people, but it's literally how I feel my best. I do have small amounts of cheese and dairy, but I notice that I, if I'm trying to cut body fat, I usually have to cut dairy out to do that. Yeah. Um, yeah. But like, for, like my stomach handles it fine. And I really love cheese. That's why I couldn't be paleo. <laughs> So that's hard. Um, but my husband will eat very similar things. But like I said, we, we kind of live on opposite schedules. So sometimes we'll cook for the other one, whoever's home or not home. Uh, my kids, they'll eat, um, they'll eat like eggs or maybe some sausage occasionally at breakfast time. They will sometimes have like these protein waffles, but they're pretty low carb. Okay. Um, and then we have yogurt like that only has one gram of sugar. So, you know, sometimes they'll have that. Um, lunches, a lot of times they'll just have like some meats and cheeses, like maybe some berries. Um, and then we try to really let them eat whatever dinner we're having. So like I said, it's crazy. Like my oldest daughter asks for steak and mushrooms That's now, awesome. which is like mind blowing to me. But yeah, they really just kind of eat whatever we eat for dinner. So sure. so, so your oldest, um, she was able to transition from like a standard American diet to sort of a low carb diet with ease or how, how did that transition go? I mean, they definitely, they definitely still crave sugar, um, <laughs> and they have it occasionally, but, um, sure. and we have, you know, we do have some bars and things like that in our pantry, you know, for quick snacks on the go. Um, but I always am trying to find like the lowest carb, lowest sugar version, or sometimes I've made them like my own version of like muffins. I think I used your recipe one time. <laughs> And they, I mean, it's crazy. Like they, they'll eat it. That's kind of like my litmus test. Like if my kids eat it, like it's, it's good. <laughs> so, you, but they do, they have, they have carbs occasionally. Um, I really at all costs try to avoid sugar. Um, but it's, they've really embraced it far better than I ever imagined. Yeah. I think if kids are hungry, um, I mean, I don't think there's any kid that would deny meat. I mean, how can someone, right, deny meat and butter? I just think that they need to be hungry, though. So um, because there's a lot of parents that ask, like, my kid doesn't like meat because of the texture. They're really picky eaters. But I really think if a child is hungry, if they didn't have, like, three snacks of carbs and then, you know, um, like the mac and cheese and the chicken nuggets, then they will eat meat and they will eat liver. They will eat foods that are nutrient dense because their bodies will crave it and um, they will feel good on it. But I think it takes time and it takes parents to not feed them the easily accessible junk. Right. Um, right. And in terms of sugar, um, I think it's founded that uh, kids actually go in and out of ketosis way faster than adults. So even if they do have a little bit of sugar, I think their bodies can handle it a little better than probably ours where, you know, we may have a little bit more metabolic disease in us. Um, so I don't think it's that bad, but I think it's a balance, right? You don't want to have them have yeah. too much sugar. Um, and so I, I, I feed my kids the same way. Um, we are about at the end of this, but um, you know, if anyone were to walk away from this live, what, what, you know, would you want them to really walk away with this um, information from you? Like what would be your biggest tip or yeah. advice yeah. for People. You know, the biggest thing for people is to be your own expert, like know your body the best. <laughs> Nobody should care about your health more than you yes. um, because how you feel your body and your spouse or your partner or other people in your family might look slightly different. I mean, everybody sometimes needs some modifications. So be your own expert, um, do some self experimentation and just see, you know, how your body responds to different things. That's how I've really found my most optimal health. If we just use like, you know, a blanket approach for everybody, it would, it doesn't work for everybody. And so we all, you know, have different DNA inside our bodies. And so just be your own expert. Okay. Thank you. And then uh, what, uh, where can people find you? Um, any, any information about yourself that you'd like to share what you're you know, up to and all that good stuff? Yeah. So I have, well, obviously Instagram, Dr. Fit and Fabulous. I also have a Facebook page. Um, I also have a website, drfitandfabulous.com. Um, I have a podcast that's starting soon. So they can oh, that's awesome. Yeah. I have some different um, keto startup guides that will be coming out. Um, I'll be at KetoCon. If anybody's going to be there, come say hi. 
um, I'll be at a lot of different places this uh, this next year speaking and doing some things and um, long-term plans. People have been asking for a book on pregnancy and low carb and things like that. So that's in the works. That, that'll be awesome. I think you're a great person that, to do something like that. So thanks right. for well, having me. No, thank you so much. This has been very informative and, um, you know, I'm really glad. Um, I think maybe I'll create a series with the content that we've just talked about. So it'll be fun. And then uh, I'll share it with you. But thank you so awesome. much for joining me. And I think this has been really helpful for everyone. Okay. Thank, thank you, you so much. I'll talk to you soon. Bye, everyone. Thanks for listening to the Nutrition with Judy podcast. If you liked what you heard today, please make sure to leave a five-star review on your favorite podcast app so more listeners like you can find the show. If you want more practitioner care and support, head over to nutritionwithjudy.com groups so you can get more real talk about carnivore, the environment, and root cause healing. You can also find my content on Nutrition with Judy's YouTube, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Make sure to sign up for my weekly newsletter and learn more about in-depth articles with infographics at nutritionwithjudy.com slash articles. You can find my two books, Carnivore Cure and the Complete Carnivore Diet for Beginners on carnivorecure.com and amazon.com. At the heart of Nutrition with Judy's practice, our mission lies with a deep, unwavering passion for service and community. We will continue to empower you to have the knowledge and tools to live a life nearly symptom-free because we firmly believe in healing and wellness for all.